word this morning in practical ways that will equip us to minister to one another and to glorify Jesus, for he is worthy. And we give you thanks for this time in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen and amen. We are in 1 Timothy 5 this morning. We're starting into 1 Timothy 5, and you know what that means. There is only six chapters, and uh, we will be done shortly. I mean, pastorally speaking, it'll be short. Let's stand together and read these first eight verses of 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, chapter, 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Follow along with me now. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. I want to start in on this text this morning. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul would spend so much time in uh, this little letter. Really, nothing else has he spent more time on than dealing with widows, but we, we will put that off until next week. Because there's something else that, uh, as I dove into the first two verses of this text, I realize that it's been a long time since we talked about these things. And I'll tell you what these things are as we go. But this is very, very important. I hope that this morning will be very, very practical for you. In fact, some of you are going to want to take that section of your notes and cut it out and put it on your bathroom mirror or stick it in your Bible or on your refrigerator or something like that. Because all of us, from time to time, either have sin in our lives that need to be confronted, or there's someone else in our life, in our sphere of influence, who has sinned, and we need to confront them. And the Word of God is sufficient for that. Now, before I start into all of that, let's remember the context here. The apostle has been teaching about what it means to live in the household of God. He's been telling this to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus, and in a tertiary way, to us. We're the third one down the totem pole, as it were, because we're reading it now 2,000 years later. Paul is teaching us how to live in the household of God, how to be a member of the family of God, what is involved in relating to one another since we are sons and daughters of God. The metaphor of household is an apt description of the church, there are other descriptions of the church in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Peter, Peter calls the church a holy nation, which points to our mutual citizenship in heaven. And John, in the book of Revelation, calls the church a kingdom in John 5.10, 
which points to our mutual submission to a common king, namely the lamb who is slain, who is our king. Again, Peter refers to the church as a priesthood, pointing to the believer's access to God in 1 Peter 2.5. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul calls the church a temple in um, 2.20 through 22. The apostles' teaching in the temple is the foundation. And you remember what the cornerstone is? The cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ himself. In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls the church the body, pointing to the believer's dependence on the head, who is Jesus. And the author of Hebrews calls the church the assembly, which emphasizes our common calling to gather around the eternal presence of God, which is what we do whenever we gather, right? Whether we're a large group or a small group, we are gathered in the presence of God around his word. The church is also called a flock, hinting to the reality that we have a common shepherd and hinting also to the reality that we think too much of ourselves. We are really but sheep. And here in 1 Timothy, the church is referred to as a household. We are the household of God. Or more commonly said, we are the family of God. As John MacArthur points out, the word family here speaks of intimacy and care and openness and love. It is about our relationships to one another, certainly our relationship to God as our Father, and Christ, our brother, which we'll talk about some more this morning. But we are sons and daughters of God. And so as Paul is talking about how Timothy is to train the church to live as the household of God, he comes to this issue of dealing with um, dealing with sin. Now, isn't it theologically true that God intends for all of his people to live in community? I mean, search the scriptures far and wide, search through all of the New Testament, you will never find a Christian who is separated from a local congregation, unless he's in transit from one church to another. And we have so many people in America today who, uh, their philosophy of Christianity, it's me and Jesus, it's me and my Bible. God never intended it to be that way. From the very beginning, from the very beginning we see this. When God created man, he created him male and female. He created community. Humanity would begin with community. And by the way, isn't that a, a reflection of God himself? He existed eternally in community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfectly happy in their state of oneness, eternal oneness. And now they, they go public with their glory. He goes public with his glory by creating man. And he creates man in community. The only way they could fulfill their role in this world is to live in intimate community. They were to fill the earth with the glory of God as the water covers the sea. In other words, they were to have children. They were to be fruitful and multiply. And I tell you what, at Calvary Bible Church, we're obeying that command, aren't we? Israel was God's primary Old Testament community. God created Israel as the community of God. And isn't it true that Jesus taught us to address God as our, what? Father. Pointing to the family, the, the familial nature of God's people with one another and with him. 
You may also remember that time in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus was already speaking of his disciples, speaking to his disciples in familial terms. Mark chapter 3, verses 32 through 35. Uh, you might remember this little narrative. It says, a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And then, looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here is my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God. In other words, whoever is a true disciple of mine is my mother my brother, my sister. And so look around. Uh, the people sitting next to you are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and everywhere you go that you meet a Christian, you meet a brother or sister in Christ. Your relationship to them, maybe not experientially, but spiritually, is deeper with them than even your blood relatives if they don't know the Lord. You have a relationship with other believers. They are part of the same family, and they are to be treated as such. And beloved, kind of one of, the, one of the secondary or undercurrent kind of themes that I want you to hear this morning is we think too, mu- too little of that relationship that we have with one another. Those relationships are so easily broken. We walk away from them too quickly. We put people off. I mean, I mean, if they're your, your blood-born brother and sister and you're living in the same household, I mean, you can't get away from them. But if they're just a fellow church member, I mean, you get mad at each other, you can easily say, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. And walk away. Or leave the church. Or whatever it is. And you break fellowship, that's a big, big deal to God. It is a big deal to God. And we need to learn how to address sin in such a manner that preserves the unity which he created in us and for us. A unity with Christ, yes, but a unity in Christ that binds us all together in unity. Whenever we share the Lord's table, and you eat that bread, and you drink that cup, you are reaffirming the covenant with the people around you. They're all eating the bread and drinking the cup. They are all saying, thank you, God, that we are one in Jesus Christ. Even the people in this church that are hard to get along with, or maybe I'm the one hard to get along with, we are one. And that unity, that fellowship should not be easily broken. But far too often it is. It is. In our passage this morning, Paul is concerned about how we minister to one another in the church Two areas of specific concern that he addresses, and I had hoped to get to both today, but we'll save the other for the second one for next week. But here they are the need to address sin in God's family, and secondly, the need to care for aging parents in God's family. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about that. Learn some things this week. And Darla Shannon was a big help with that, and I'll tell you about that next week. Did you know she wrote a book? And it's about that topic, and it's excellent. I commend it to you, and I will next week. I'll show it to you. But let's begin here with the need to address sin 
Now, I got diving into this this week, and I realized by the time I got done writing about this one topic and, and even trying to, to pare it down a little bit, I still had a full sermon. And so let's look at this. Verses 1 and 2 is all we're going to cover this morning, but watch this. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, the interpretive key here is the word rebuke, because he only mentions it once. And so the assumption, we can infer that it's intended to be inserted in each one of these. Just rhetorically, he doesn't feel the need to repeat the word rebuke, rebuke, rebuke again. Besides, that's hard to do, as I just demonstrated. And it's, it's what we're called to do when there's sin. Now, there are many ways for the members of God's family to minister to one another, and most of them are absolutely delightful, right? Uh, we help one another move. We bring meals. We, we pray for one another and together. Uh, we counsel one another. We sing together. We, you know, send cards and emails and texts and all of those things together. And most of the ministry that we do with and for one another is positively delightful and we can't wait to be involved in the next one. But there is one aspect of personal ministry that none of us enjoys. Uh, no one in, enjoys doing this, in fact. No one likes confronting sin in this life. Um, when you see someone else who has committed sin, or you heard it, or you think you heard it, and, and it feels like the Holy Spirit is urging you to say something, Ugh. You know, it's just easy to say, you know, I just had too much caffeine. I'm just uptight. It's easy to make excuses and, and not say anything. Paul knew that Timothy, in particular, was going to have to do this. I mean, it was Paul himself who sent him to the church of Ephesus. And he sent him for a reason. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. I urge you, urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge... Certain persons charge, that, that's not fun, charging certain, that's not credit card, that's speaking to them in a, in, a, in a confrontational way. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, etc. You remember the context. There are problems in this church. He sent Timothy there for a short-term assignment but his assignment was, until Paul could get there, he was to begin working with this church to deal with the false teaching and to set matters right. So he knew, he knew when he wrote this letter, Timothy was going to have to confront people. He was going to have to confront sin. He wasn't sent there merely to encourage and bless. There were false teachers who needed Rebuke. There were women who needed correction. There were young men who needed to be warned and others who needed exhortation. And there are two things that are true in every church. No one likes to be confronted on their own sin, and no one likes to be the one who has to confront someone else. It's just no fun, and it's risky. You may lose that relationship, or you may cause strife. And the devil will put all kinds of things in your mind to keep you from doing it. But Paul knew Timothy needed to do this if he was going to turn the church around and bring it to true repentance. And sooner or later, as we strive to minister to one another, 
we will find it necessary to confront sin. And confront uh, probably is a term that, that is too strong, at least in the beginning. It shouldn't feel like confrontation. It should just feel like reminder of something we have momentarily forgotten. Classic passages that we think of when we think of confronting sin are Matthew 18, right? And uh, maybe one that you're not as familiar with is Luke 17, but they cover the same issue, almost with the same words. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And then he lays out four stages. You know, you rebuke him privately, you don't tell anyone. And by the way, I think that's step one. Step one. I don't think you do that once and then move to step two. You do step one and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. You know, not to be obnoxious about it, but you, you keep pressing. You're being patient. And then you move to step two, which is if you have to, you bring in somebody else. Hopefully somebody who knows about the situation. If not, somebody who can just help you communicate the scriptures and answer questions and call them to repentance. If that doesn't work, then tell it to the church. And if that doesn't work, then kick them out of the assembly and declare that he's an unbeliever. That's, that's hard. But this is what Timothy was sent to do. And, and we often call this church discipline, but we don't have to call it church discipline. You know, the scripture doesn't call it church discipline. Most of our Bibles have a heading there that uh, the publisher put in, and it says church discipline. And so we've adopted that terminology. But we could call it something else. In fact, I like to call it corrective discipleship. This is what we're doing. We're making disciples, right? We're helping each other grow in Christ. And sometimes as we're growing, we get a little off course. We just need a course correction. We need somebody to kind of grab us by the ear and say, hey, come back here. You know, something's blowing you off course. Corrective discipleship. And though the fear of engaging in such confrontation may be paralyzing at first, I found it so helpful to remember Proverbs 28 23, and this is what it says. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Let me say it again. Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man, that is, whoever obeys Matthew 18 or Luke 17 or any one of a number of other texts, Whoever rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor, and I think he means from the person you rebuked. You will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. And I've seen this so often. You're you're so scared to say something to someone, and then when you do, they love you for it. It it was hard for them to hear. They may have pushed back a little bit, but in the end, they come if they're a true brother or sister in Christ, and they thank you. And your relationship, you know, some of the relationships, there are a couple of relationships in my life that, um, that I thought were pretty good. And then we hit, we hit a rough spot, and there was sin, a mutual sin. And the relationship appeared like it was over. And yet by God's grace, the word of God was brought to bear on both sides. And when reconciliation happened, we discovered that our friendship was then stronger than it had ever been before. And that's just the way God does things, right? His path is always better. But you know, there is a a right way to confront sin, and there's a wrong way. In fact, there are many wrong ways. And this is important for us as a church because Christians often cause great harm to the fellowship by not dealing with sin according to the teaching of Scripture. I mean, 
Don't we believe that the scripture is sufficient for all things? We believe that, right? So we don't have to make it up as we go along when we have to confront sin or when we're being confronted by sin. Surely the word of God offers us the truth we need to address sin in a manner that pleases the Lord and maintains the unity in the church. So let's consider how to exhort or correct a fellow Christian properly. And this applies to anybody. This may be in your marriage. It may be parenting. It may be just a dear friend of yours who just needs some correction. It, it could be, maybe it's your mother or your father. That's hard. And Paul addresses that. And so let's, there's going to be three things here, but the first one is this. First of all, if you're going to do this rightly, if you're going to do it biblically, number one, consider, or I think in the notes it's A, consider the person you must address. Now we're back to 1 Timothy 5. Now watch this. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Encourage him as you would a father. Older men are to be treated as fathers. So if there's an older man that you have heard or seen commit sin, you need to stop. You don't, you don't run in there and say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Uh, that will probably bear the, the wrong fruit in your relationship. What you should do, first of all, is, is ask yourself, what kind of person is this that I need to approach? And if he's an older man... You think, hmm, didn't the scripture tell me how I should approach an older man? And the answer is yes. 1 Timothy 5 verse 1 tells us how to um, approach an older man. Now the word rebuke here means to strike upon or to rebuke sharply. And that's what Paul is saying, don't do. Don't do that. Don't strike him with your words. Don't rebuke him sharply. There may be an occasion when an older man who's, maybe he's one of the, maybe he's getting drawn into the false teaching in the church of Ephesus. And he's a dear brother. And you, you just need to pull him aside. Don't strike him with your words. Don't go in with a hammer. Or maybe he begins showing signs that his hope is in riches rather than in God which Paul will talk about in chapter 6, verse 9. He may need correction, but because he's an older man, interesting, the word older here is presbyteros. It, it's, it's the same word for elder, right? He's not saying he's an elder. Um, because, of, uh, because of the language here, we know he's just talking about an older man. We'll see the same thing with older women. He may need correction, but because he's an older man, we must, and here's the other word, the prescription is, if he's an older man, encourage him. And it's interesting, the Greek word here is parakaleo. means to come beside him, to entreat him. You don't come with a hammer, you come with a hug. You come, you just put your arm around him and say, hey, can we talk for a minute? I just have a question. And can you, can you help me understand and treat him as if He's your father. He's the one you normally go to receive counsel from. Even if you don't, you take that posture. If you were your father and you had a good relationship, you would go seek counsel from him. You're still in that position. You put yourself in that position. You rank yourself under this older man. 
and you come beside him. And the implication here is, and you do it tentatively, you do it gently, you do it asking questions. One of the phrases that we try to remember when, uh, uh, and teach those who are, who are learning how to do personal ministry is, is this phrase, um, questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. Isn't that true? Questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. If you go in with accusations, just be ready for a fight. Be ready for a fail. Because that, that conversation is probably not going to go well. Treat him like a father. And then he says this. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Younger men as brothers. Young men are to be treated as brothers. So how do you correct your brother? You say things like, hey, bro, what do you think you're doing? That's dumb. It needs to stop. No, I'm just teasing. Don't say that. (laughs) That may be how you spoke to your biological brother. I know my biological brother talked to me that way, and, uh, and I to him. But when you're all grown up, your brother in the Lord needs to be treated with care. With care. Not exactly the same as you, you would an, uh, a father, but really not, not that distinctly. You remember that Christ calls himself your brother in Hebrews 2.12, for example. And that's a fabulous passage, by the way, because whenever we're singing here together, I remember that text because it's a text referring to the Messiah, and he's talking about singing God's praises with the brethren. And so whenever we're singing here, I try to remind myself, Jesus is singing with us. To the extent that what we're singing is true. Which, praise the Lord. Thank you, Kyle. But uh, the Lord is singing with us. He considers us his brothers and sisters. God mutually, our father, and he, our brother. And we should treat one another as if we were talking to Jesus. Um, yes, sometimes. You know, you think, about, you think about how Jesus ministered to his disciples, his little band of brothers, right? Sometimes he was really, really direct. Sometimes he rebuked them strongly. But never with harshness, never critical, sinfully critical, or sinfully harsh, um, he was never, it was never in an unreasonable manner. James says that true wisdom is reasonable. If he's your brother in Christ, he deserves special patience. He deserves a deeper affection, a gentler care. Breaking, uh, breaking fellowship with a member of the church should not be, it should not be entered into lightly. In fact, you should go in with fear and trembling, not that he's going to reject you, but that somehow the church of Jesus Christ would be harmed if this this goes badly. Breaking fellowship is no small thing. It shouldn't happen lightly or swiftly or improperly. After all, he is your brother. I've said on a number of occasions to men who were in dispute with someone else, remember, he is your brother. He's your brother. You can't just walk away from that. 
You can't just brand him with some name and walk away. He is your brother. Work at this. It's worth working on for Jesus' sake. They will know that you were followers of me if you have love for one another, said Jesus. Your relationship with him, listen, your relationship with that brother or sister in Christ is forever. It's forever. So take your time and work things out and spare the church, which will otherwise be caused the harm caused by your sin. And by the way, if you go into a situation like that where a brother has sinned against you and you handle it badly, you sin against them, now you've complicated the problem. Now there's not one sin to deal with, now there's two. And you see, when you bring other people on board, which by the way, when you become a member of Calvary Bible Church, there are certain things that you agree to. And one of them is, if you ever have a problem with another brother or sister in Christ in the church, or someone in leadership, like me, or any of the other elders, that you will deal with that situation in a biblical manner, which means you will talk to that person individually and only to them, and maybe to your spouse, for counsel. But you will not broaden the circle. You will not form a team of people to be on your side. This is something that we agree to in black and white. We, we initial it on our membership form. Why? Because this is so critical to the life of the body. We want everyone here, if you're a part of the church, to commit to dealing with conflict, to dealing with sin in a biblical manner. Why? Because we are all what class? Sinners. That's right. And what do sinners do? Sinners sin. That's right. It's not that complicated. I like to say dogs bark, sinners sin. Don't be surprised. Just deal with it appropriately. Deal with it appropriately. When it comes to correction, approach a young man like a brother. And then he says this. Um, Younger men as brothers, older women, older women as mothers. Now, perhaps the older woman has been a busybody or she's been a gossip or maybe she's neglecting her role as wife and mother. And by the way, ladies, don't, don't say he's not talking about me because I'm not an older woman. Um, probably if you're married, you're an older woman. I hate to tell you that. Um, uh, it, it, it may be shocking to learn that you're an older woman, but you don't have to be very old to be an older woman. If you're older than someone else in the church, then you are the older woman. Uh, maybe she's neglecting her role as mother. Maybe she's brought into the false teaching that was spreading in Ephesus. Maybe she needs correction, but don't treat her like a criminal. Don't treat her like a criminal. Don't go in with a hammer. Rather, treat her like you would treat your mother. Surely you wouldn't be harsh with your mom. I wouldn't. My mom knocked me down. You wouldn't be harsh with her. You would probably be tentative and gentle with your mother. And so if there's an older woman who needs correction, you should ask yourself, what kind of person is this to whom I must bring confrontation? And if she's older than you, I need to treat her like my mom. Like my mom. And I will be very careful, and I will be tentative, And I'll teach you how to do a little bit of that in just a minute. Number four, 
um, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. The phrase that Paul stresses here is in all purity. Now, no, remember, he's, he's writing, first of all, to Timothy, who we know as a younger man. He's younger than Paul. He might be 35. He might be as old as 40. But he's a younger man. He's still in his prime. There will be occasions when an older man, particularly a pastor or a youth leader or, I don't know, Awana's teacher, Sunday school teacher, I don't know what it is, but you as an older man will need to exhort a younger woman. Now, you don't have to be a theologian to reconstruct Paul's concern here. Timothy and all Christian men must be very careful not to be tempted to show improper interest or improper intimacy in such situations. An excellent theologian, George Knight, very competently says this. Paul, with respective... Let me try this again. Paul, with perceptive realism, gives this special word of caution for the situation where a male minister is called on to deal personally and privately with a younger woman. To heighten this concern, he adds the word all. He says all purity. All meaning absolute, absolute purity. When it comes to giving biblical counsel to a younger woman, and sometimes older men will need to do that. But the application here is obvious. And by the way, when a younger woman really needs someone to speak into her life and to talk about her problems over an extended period of time, to whom should she turn? Other than Christ, to whom should she turn? We're back to the older women. That's right. I mean, there are some times when a younger woman will come to me and she'll say, hey, can we sit down and I have some questions for you and can you answer them? Stop by the office. Can, can I have just 20 minutes or so? Sure, come on in. Keep the door open if we can. Cracked it at least. And we're going to talk about something. And maybe at the end, if we don't resolve the issue, if it's not resolvable in, in one quick session, then we'll say, hey, why don't we get you set up with one of the older women in the church? And they're usually, boy, so eager for that to happen. But this is Paul's concern. Paul is clear on this point. Older women are to instruct the younger women. And beloved, the harsh reality is many a church and many a mission board and many a marriage throughout church history could have been saved from ruin, from shipwreck, simply by pastors paying attention to the opening two verses of 1 Timothy 5. So, when confronting sin, we first need to consider the person that we must address. Secondly, consider the problem. Consider the problem you must address. Now, here I'm going to step away from 1 Timothy and for the rest of this message, because I want to build on this uh, in in an attempt to equip the saints for dealing with conflict or addressing sin. I want to be very practical here and more practical as we go along. So consider the problem that you must address. So what I want you to see here is Paul doesn't want you to dive into these, these situations without thought. If you jump into this thoughtlessly, you're going to blow the thing up. Take your time. Think about it. Pray about it. Ask yourself some questions. To whom must I speak? And to what problem must I speak? 
Now, Paul's not going to list all the problems here, but if you can just flip over to 1 Thessalonians 5, this is, you'll turn to the left to get there. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. And here's what Paul says to the church of Thessalonica. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And so here we have different problems, different problems to deal with. And you're going to deal with them in different ways. Admonish the unruly. The unruly here may not be what you think it is. Unruly means idle. It means they're lazy. They're undisciplined. If one is failing in his duty to work, to earn a living, and provide for his family, he must be admonished. That is, he must be warned of the dangers and consequences of their sin. In fact, it was to this same church in Thessalonica that Paul warned, if a man doesn't work, neither shall he eat. Uh, I think the inference there is that this man who wasn't working, in the Thessalonians, there was, there was deception going around, false teaching about the return of the Lord. And Paul was trying to correct this. Paul was correcting this in, in a lot of his letters. Uh, this is really ele- elementary to the false teaching. So often the false teaching re- revolved around the parousia, the return of Christ, the end times. And so here were some, some people who were saying, well, the resurrection's about to happen, or it already has happened. We're just returning, waiting for the return of the Lord, and that's going to happen any day now. Well, it hasn't happened today. Hey, can I have some food? Can I have some food? I quit my job because I'm waiting for the Lord to return. We ran into a group like this in Haiti. They were all kind of cloistered in this commune. They all wore white, and they were sitting around waiting for the day of the Lord. They thought it was going to happen any minute now, and so they weren't working. And Paul says, if you're not working, don't ask me for food. Don't ask your church for food. The Lord can provide. If you legitimately lose your job, the Lord will provide abundantly. But if you just quit for no good reason, you're just a lazy slacker, then don't go to other people for food, not even other Christians. And they shouldn't give it to you. You probably have questions about that, and that really isn't my point. The point here is there are different kinds of problems. As we engage with one another and we minister to each other, sometimes we'll engage with someone who's just unruly. Not that they're angry and they're flying all over the place. That could be a problem. But in this case, Paul's dealing with this specific one that he's not working. He's lazy. The second one is faint-hearted. The word faint-hearted means they lack motivation or they are discouraged. This might be a person who's down or depressed This kind of problem may need to be addressed, but it's a different one, and it needs to be addressed in a different way. He or she needs to be, and here's the word Paul uses, encouraged, encouraged, that is comforted. It's uh, parakaleo again, the same thing we saw with older men. Come beside them and minister encouragement. Uh, Perhaps he needs to be reminded of the promises of God in Christ. Whatever it is, bring God's word to bear for their encouragement. And then three, help the weak. Weak here means physically weak. They may be sick. They may have cancer. We've got some folks that we know in this church, right? We've got Dana. We've had other people who had cancer in this church. And in other churches, Erin Canariato is, is sick. We all know, many of us know and love her. And what do you do when you're trying to minister to them? 
Help the weak. Uh, the person may be down because of illness, it may be down because of injury. He needs a brother or a sister to render aid in tangible ways. This is where you bring in the meals. It's where you, you write the cards and you're sending the, the texts and the emails of encouragement. And then his fourth statement here is be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. Listen, here's something that's true of every person you'll minister to, right? We're equipping for ministry, right? Every person you minister to, if they're a believer, they are three things. They are a saint, they are a sinner, and they are a sufferer. Don't just think they're a sinner. Don't just think every person that you minister to is a sinner. And I got my hammer and I just need to pound them, and that'll fix it. No, they're a saint. They're your brother in Christ. And they're a sufferer. At At some level, they're suffering. And just keep that in mind as you're ministering. And so we have seen that before we confront, we must consider the person and we must consider the problem. And now let's get, get real practical. We also need to consider some preliminaries to confrontation. And so I want to offer eight questions to ask yourself before confronting someone on an issue you think needs to be addressed. You think it's sin. And so... Here is the first. Now, if you want to just flip the Proverbs, because we're going to be in Proverbs for a little bit here. I'm going to mention some other scriptures, but uh, Proverbs will be our main text. And the first one is Proverbs 18. And the first question you should ask yourself is this. Do I have the facts? Do I really know what has gone on here? And so often, beloved, this is where it breaks down. You never even ask the question. You, just, you get everything figured out in your mind, and you just blaze in there with your rebuking hammer. And, uh, and it, wasn't, it wasn't all that you thought it was. Proverbs 18.13 says this. This is the ESV. Um, 18.13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And you're going to come away really embarrassed when you jump in there and you make accusations. You didn't ask questions. You remember? Um, Accusations harden the heart. Questions convict the conscience. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. You're going to go in there and start giving counsel? You're going to go in there and and throw Bible verses at him? And then you're going to say, "Wait, wait a minute. Uh... You got it all wrong. There are, can I make an appeal here? There are certain details you didn't know. And then you're going to have egg on your face. And now the opportunity for you to help that person and truly minister to them has been sabotaged. So ask questions. Do I have the facts? Number two, is this really sin? Is this really sin? Now hold your finger here in Proverbs and jump to James. This is the only New Testament text I'll take you to. But is this, is this issue really a sin? Now, I'm in James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. James 4, 11 and 12. And here's what we read. I want, you to, I want you to see the last statement first, because it'll clarify what he's saying. The very last statement in, in verse 12 is, But who are you to judge your neighbor? So that's what's going on. You're going after your brother, your sister, your neighbor, whoever it is, 
You're, you're throwing out accusations. You're, you're, you're telling them that what they did was wrong, but you don't have the word of God on your side. And so here's what he says. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the what? The law, the scriptures. And judges the, the law, the scriptures. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and you are not him. No, I inserted that. <laughs> there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, let me, let me just try to simplify this a little bit. Don't accuse a person of sinning if you can't back that up with the teaching or testimony or example in Scripture of that sin. If you judge a person of a sin that the Bible doesn't call sin, then what are you doing? What you're doing is two things. You are casting judgment against the Bible. And you're saying, Bible, you are not sufficient. If you were truly sufficient, then name the thing that bugs me as sin on someone else's part. And you don't name it as sin. You're judging the law. And not only that, but he says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. What's, what's the implication there? You are not only judging God's word, you are judging God. You were saying, God, you missed something. Obviously, this person did something that really bugs me. And I'm gonna, I want to go rebuke him for sin. But you didn't say it was sin. What's wrong with you, God? That's a dangerous thing, isn't it? If it isn't sin, and you go after another person just because it bothered you, whatever that thing was, then you're judging God's word. And you're judging God. I think there are some people, if they, just, if they just wiped away from their slate of things that they want to confront another person about, if they just wiped off everything that wasn't named sin in the Bible, uh, things would go better in their relationships. I'm sure there's plenty of, of real sin, but let's make sure it's real sin. Now back to Proverbs. Should love cover it? I mean, I'm not going to name a proverb here, but 1 Peter 4.8 says this, love covers a multitude of sins. Listen, not everything needs to be confronted. Not everything needs to be confronted. You know, um, if someone's joking around and they say something that kind of embarrasses you, um, they weren't doing it maliciously, but you think, you know, that was an untimely word. I, I can name that in scripture. <laughs> or that wasn't seasoned with salt. Ephesians, you know, 4.29. Are you really going to confront over it? Do you have to confront over it? And the answer is no. You don't have to confront over that. You don't have to confront every sin. Love covers a multitude of sins. Listen, there are people around us, all over, all around us who are committing sins. And sometimes they, they just hit us. Sometimes it needs to be confronted. And sometimes not. Are you really going to let it break fellowship? Now, if it's a sin that comes between you, and you, you find that you cannot fellowship with that person. Um, 
Maybe it's your problem and not theirs. But if it's really an issue, then love may require that you go talk to them, especially if it's, an, if it's a pattern. But if it's a pattern, you are going to need to confront them sooner or later. But sometimes love covers this. You need to ask yourself, can love just cover this? Would the Lord be pleased if I just not address every single sin I see? And some people are tempted that way. Not everybody is. Some people are tempted the other way. They don't want to address any sin. And some people want to address every sin they see. And if you're that kind of person, let love cover some of that. And number five, is my timing right? And here we are back to the book of Proverbs. Is my timing right? Should I just wait? Uh, Look at Proverbs 15, verse 23. By the way, on issues of communication and conflict, Proverbs is the best. Uh, There's just so much here. 1523, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, good it is, good it is. Um, you know, if someone, uh, let's see, who, who taught Ken, the Sunday school this morning, Ken, Ken taught Sunday school, right? Adult Sunday school. Let's say that Ken did something that really, that really rubbed you the wrong way about a month ago, and you've been harboring that, and you just feel like, i got to make this right. I either need to go confess. No, 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 I really need to confront. I need to confront. And he's about ready to get up and teach Sunday school. And you pull him aside and say, hey, Ken, can, you just, can we just talk for a minute? I say, remember that thing you did against me? That really bugged me, and, and I've really, I've kind of hated your guts ever since. <laughs> um, is that timely? Do you have to do that then? Really? Do you have to do that then? Um, is your timing right? And look at Proverbs chapter 25. Proverbs chapter 25. By the way, another example of that is if the, if the other person just had a really, a really hard day, unrelated to you, and you know they're exhausted or they've just been beat down at the office or, or whatever it is. Maybe, 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 Dad, you come home and, and your wife's just had a really, really bad day. And you, you have something that you want to talk to her about, but you know, wow, this was an extraordinarily bad day. I'm just warning you, don't do it then. <laughs> it would not be good. Not be good for her and not be good for your marriage. But John, I'm sorry, I always did my mind. I default to John. We were in it so long. Uh, Proverbs 25, 11 and 12. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Is my timing right? It's like apples of gold in settings of silver if your timing is right. And you know what? If you're going to get your timing right, you're going to have to think about it. You're going to have to put some thought into this. You see that as a common theme here? Um... Number six, is my attitude right? Is my attitude right? If you have to confront, don't do it when you're mad. Don't do it when you're mad. If your emotions are kind of on the fly, just, just tap the brake a little bit. Give it some time. Is my attitude right? And I'm going to jump back to the New Testament here, but, but stay in Proverbs. You, you're familiar with this, Ephesians 4.15. Here's the question you should ask. Am I able to speak the truth in love? And Paul comes back to this again and again. Speaking the truth in love. Can we speak the truth in love? Or am I going to speak the truth in such a way that's like a hammer? You're just going to go in and shatter it. 
to shatter the, the well-being of the other person. Is my attitude right? Number seven, are my words carefully chosen? And I already mentioned this passage, but this is uh, Proverbs 15, 15, 28. Proverbs 15, 28. Here's what we read. 15:28 The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things And notice the, the distinction here One person the wicked person just blurts out whatever they're feeling whatever they're thinking right And they say listen I just have to be honest Well that sounds pretty self-righteous that sounds pretty holy. I just have to be honest about what's in my heart. I'm just expressing what's in my heart. Listen, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately sick. Nobody wants them splattered with all of that, right? Don't say everything you think. That's not being dishonest. That's being godly. It's being one who is ruled by the word of God rather than ruled by your emotions. Again, 1528, let's read it again. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked spews out evil. And, you know, we're taught, psychology teaches us just to get it off your chest. Just whatever's in there, just say it. It'll be good in the end. And it's not good, it's harmful, it's not holy. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. You may, you may need to wrestle your emotions down for an hour or two or a half a day or more. You may have to take out a pad and start writing things down, not keeping a record of sin, but how shall I address this in a manner that honors the Lord? What words should I use? What words should I not use? Maybe even take it and give it to a godly friend who knows the word of God, a like-minded believer, and say, would you read this and tell me how it sounds? Does it sound like I'm accusing? Does it sound like I'm, I'm putting them down unnecessarily? Does it sound like I'm, I'm the fool here in 1528? Help me. I want to communicate grace and love, but this problem needs to be addressed. And I want to do it in a, in a submissive way, submissive to the Lord. And if you're the wife, submissive to your husband. Or maybe you're the husband. I want to do it in a godly way. I want to do it where I'm ranking myself under her, even though I'm called to lead. Are my words carefully chosen? You can tell I think that's, that's an important one. And number eight, will it be profitable? That is, will my confrontation help or hurt? Will it be constructive or destructive? Listen to this text. In fact, turn there, Ephesians 4, 29. Ephesians 4, 29. And this is what we read. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for, what's the next word? You can say it, go ahead. Edification. Uh, maybe you're tentative because you don't know what edification means. Are you familiar with the word edifice? You know what an edifice is? It's a, it's a building. Um, it's something that's being built or something that has been built. It's the idea of building up. 
You're helping with the construction of this other person. You are helping them conform to the image of Christ. You are wanting them to learn. You're trying to help them learn to live like Christ because that's what it means to be a disciple. You're helping them learn Christ in such a way that his life and character, his words become your life and character and your words, your attitudes, your feelings. And if what you are going to say does not accomplish that or or you think probably not going to accomplish that, it's probably not going to be edifying according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear If that's not true, then don't do it. Maybe you just need to time out a little bit. Give yourself a time out. You know? And and I'm not trying to be um, psychological or anything. I'm just saying, take your time. Forethought. You have to think about these things. Christians are not just emotive people. We are thinking people. And we have to think before we act when it comes to confrontation. And then the last one here is, have I prayed for God's help? And I may have gotten the numbers out of order here, but this, I think, is number eight. Have I prayed for God's help? James 1.5. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. I think I've often said in this pulpit that there's hardly been a time when I was wrestling with a a timely issue, an issue that that had to be addressed pretty quickly, and I just needed wisdom. I really just remembered this verse and asked God and and just began praying about that issue. There's hardly been a time when I went to God like that, pleading for wisdom, that he didn't give it to me before I stopped praying. We just often don't pray. We don't talk to him. And let his spirit do his work of reminding us of his word, reminding us of his truth, and bringing it to bear in our circumstance. Have I prayed for God's help? And Psalm 19.14 is another one. Let the words, here's, here, this is a great prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. And that should be a prayer we always pray before we enter into a conversation like this. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, even the deepest impulses of my heart, be acceptable to you. I live to please you. Help me to please you now and not cause further harm. And so you see, my friends, in the household of God, it's appropriate and necessary from time to time to address sin. Um, If you are not a single person living alone, and then from time to time, you will have to do this. Um, if you're a single person who is frequently around non-single people, then, then you will probably have to do this. All I'm saying is we're all in this. Some may have to do it more and some less. But this is what it is to be, this is part of what it means to be in the household of God. Sometimes it's appropriate and necessary to address sin. Timothy was going to have to do it a lot, And sometimes you will as well. It may be a friend in the church. It may be one of your children or your parents or a spouse. But believers don't take their cues from the world when it comes to confrontation. 
You want to blow up your marriage? You want to blow up that friendship? Just do it the way the world does. Make yourself supreme, your own agenda, the most important agenda. Uh, your own emotions, the only thing that matters. And I guarantee you, you'll blow that thing up. But God's word is sufficient. And God teaches us everything we need to know for life and godliness. And this is one of those areas where we see it very, very practically. But you may be here and you are not a member of God's household. You may be here, perhaps you've been listening to the teaching and preaching of God's word over the past several weeks or months, and God has revealed to you that you don't belong to him. And some of this stuff sounds so delightful, but you don't, you've never experienced this. And maybe you've come to this church and have found yourself being loved by people you didn't know. And you think, wow, this, this is amazing. I'm not sure what to make of it. It's kind of weird and kind of wonderful. And so you've been hanging out, and you want more. And you're strangely to these things, but in, the, in, the heart, in your heart of hearts, you've got to admit that you're not a member of God's household. Not yet. You've never placed your absolute trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord, your Savior. And God is your Father. And I would just say to you, my friend, at the end of your life, your sin will be addressed one way or another. The author of Hebrews said, it is appointed unto man to die once, and after that the judgment. And if you face that day, when you face that day, one of two things will happen. Either the Lord will judge your unrighteous character, your sin, and say, depart from me. I never knew you into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Or he will look at you and say, in Christ you are righteous by grace through faith. And so I would plead with you this morning, if you don't know him, he can be known by you. He can be known by you. He will accept you if you come to him on his terms. If you freely confess the only thing you have to offer him is your sin. He will freely give to you eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths and for how helpful the word of God is. It's, it's not just deep theology. It is practical living. And so we praise you for it. Help us, Father, to live in the good of these things, to practice them as we leave here and to engage with one another in a manner that's pleasing to you and brings deeper experience of unity and joy among brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the Lord. These things we pray, knowing that it's what Christ wants. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn 404.